Well, <clears throat> if you didn't catch it from my prayer, the key words in this passage are patience and steadfastness. Uh, they're the words that are repeated the most often. They're actually the same words and themes that James, be- James began his book with five chapters ago. And so like all good Jewish people, he's ended where he started, encouraging patience and steadfastness. Except in the meantime, he spent five chapters uh, tearing us up and uh, lovingly stirring the pot and uh, helping us see our own need. And having done that, comes back to patience and steadfastness. So I called this message Christian Survival because I think that's what James is after in the midst of the difficulties of ourselves and the difficulties of the world. We need to be able to survive as Christians and to not burn out or flame out, but to know how to persist in patience and steadfastness. I think we all go through uh, more than a few seasons in life where we get to learn about patience and steadfastness. One such season in my life is when I worked for Alaska Airlines before and during seminary. I love telling people I worked for Alaska Airlines because it seems kind of cool, at least to me. Uh, The part that I usually leave out of the story is that I wasn't really a real employee. I was a seasonal employee. Uh, It was, I just finished up a two-year internship in college campus ministry and had a summer to kill before going to seminary and had a need to earn some cash. And it just so happened that that summer, Alaska Airlines, based in Seattle, which is my hometown, was hiring college students to work at the airport as customer service folks, checking people in, boarding planes, over the summer, and then to keep coming back Christmases, summers, spring, vacation, fall break. Uh, It was kind of a win-win deal for everyone because the college students had a job waiting for them every time a break came along, and the airline got an influx of people every time it got busy and didn't have to pay them the rest of the year. Uh, I was pretty stoked to have the job. Um, If you know me very much, you probably know I like airplanes, and I grew up in Seattle. Uh, But it was a really hard job. Uh, Airlines live and die by punctuality, and I'm not a super scheduled person. But um, to help keep flights on time, Alaska Airlines desired to sort of create a culture of timeliness, and we were all hourly employees and had to clock in at the beginning of every shift, and it was actually a disciplinable offense to clock in as late as one minute after your shift begin time. And you do that three times and you're out of a job. Airplanes leave uh, early in the morning and late at night. And so if you work for Alaska Airlines, you're either working the early shift or the late shift. Those are the the two options. And uh, being seasoned employees, they decided that they would be extra gracious to us. Uh, So the first summer when we got assigned the early shift, we didn't have to show up until 5.30. But to have time to wake up and uh, shower, make your uniform presentable, uh, travel down to the airport, take the employee bus into the airport and make your way through the airport and clock in 
by 5.30, which actually means like 5.15, I had to wake up no later than 3.30. And I can tell you from experience, there's no way to have your alarm go off every day at 3.30 and not hate your life. (laughs) The really sad thing is, especially the first few months, I rarely was actually woken up by my alarm because I was awake already. And knowing my personality, I was so petrified that I might be late that I would wake up at 1.30. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Did I sleep through the alarm? Oh, okay. All right. It's, it's still 1.30. Okay. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Did I sleep through? Okay. Okay. It's just 2 o'clock. It's like a walking zombie. And then once you finally arrive at the airport at 5.15, you get to deal with people. We call them Passengers. And uh, as any airline employee can tell you, people say things, do things, feel things, behave in ways in airports that they would do at no other time in life. You don't really know who you are until you know yourself in an airport. Uh, There was the guy who um, was yelling at me red-faced for an extended period of time because I personally canceled his flight. And when I explained to him as gently as I could that, um, that the flight had been canceled, the flight to Mazatlan had been canceled because there was at that very moment a hurricane parked on top of Mazatlan. His response was, you don't understand I have a hotel reservation that will be canceled today if I'm not there today. After a supervisor got involved, the guy finally stomped off to go see if United Airlines could fly him to Mazatlan that day. Be patient. Be patient, therefore, brothers. Until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And farther down in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. R.J. Noling, different from J.K. Rowling, um, once defined steadfastness as the temper which does not easily succumb under suffering. I think he meant by temper the old use of the word, your personality or spirit, the soul, which does not easily succumb under suffering. To keep waking up at 3.30 every morning to go to the airport and get yelled at is difficult to maintain a soul which does not easily succumb to suffering. 
in verse 8, James says, establish your hearts. The word establish is used in the book of Luke, in Luke 9.15, when Luke says that Jesus set his face or established his face toward Jerusalem. That verse is actually the pivot verse in the entire book of Luke. Everything before it tells the story of Jesus traveling and teaching and preaching and gathering to himself. And then from the time you hear that verse, that Jesus established his face, set his face toward Jerusalem, the remainder of the book is his slow, intentional, inevitable movement to go to Jerusalem and die. And so to establish our hearts is to be determined, to be set upon with force, to not succumb under suffering, to continue. James's example is the prophets. He calls them blessed. They were blessed. They were blessed to know the Lord. There's not a single prophet that I can think about that didn't sort of give in his writings the impression that the Lord is someone that I know really well. He spoke directly to them. That's why they could write his words and say, thus says the Lord. But it wasn't actually in spite of, it was because of that connection with the Lord that most of their suffering came. Jeremiah was uh, mostly friendless and thrown into a pit more than once. Uh, He prophesied that the Israelites should not go down to Egypt, and when they didn't listen to him, they took him with them by force. Daniel was carried off into exile. Ezekiel lived a life of suffering, and Hosea was left by his wife. In every case, because of their ministry. And yet it was through those trials that they got to know the Lord so well and to develop a blessed kind of steadfastness which does not easily succumb under suffering. Uh, Working at Alaska Airlines, there's a lot of ways to get fired. Uh, Showing up late being one of them, doing drugs being another. Uh, But most dangerous of all to your job and ever-present temptation is to yell back. One relatively uh, exhausting day, I had been at the counter for a good five or six hours, having checked in probably hundreds of people for their flights, when a middle-aged couple came to check into their flight to San Diego. A husband and wife, wife was in front. She did all the speaking. She had the paperwork. They had booked their ticket on Orbitz, which was red flag number one. Because Orbitz, in the booking process, asks you what seat you would like and doesn't explain to you that Orbitz doesn't really have the authority to book seat assignments nor that Orbit's computers don't talk to Alaska Airlines computers very well. So that if you book your ticket on Orbit's, most of the time you will arrive at the ticket counter not having a seat assignment. And when I check you in, 
the computer will give you whatever is the best seat that remains at that time. So they were headed to San Diego from Seattle. Two bags, checked them in, boarding pass. Here you go, ma'am. D8, it's just down this way. She takes a look at the boarding pass. There's a pregnant pause. She looks up at me and says, 26B. That's a middle seat. Is that a middle seat? That's a middle seat. This is a three and a half hour flight. How do you expect me to sit in a middle seat for three and a half hours? The conversation went on for about five minutes. The husband was like, Inside of me, I could hear my voice as clear as day. Ma'am, a third of the seats on the airplane are middle seats. I guess it's your turn today. (laughs) Thank the Lord I didn't really say it. Even more tempting and dangerous is, um, is to begin talking about each other. Uh, Airlines overbook flights around Christmas. I don't know why. No one who works at the desk knows why, but we get to explain why. (laughs) If you check in for an overbooked flight on Alaska Airlines and you ended up on the waiting list, there's a little alert that comes up on the screen. And uh, every ticket counter agent believes that it's the job of the gate agents to inform passengers of that reality, and every gate agent believes it's the job of the ticket counter agents to inform passengers of that reality. Uh, But if you're not careful, you can tear your team apart real fast. Do not grumble against one another, brothers. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And farther down in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So apparently talking about the tongue is one of James's favorite things to do. This is reference number 347 by my counting. Uh, And at first it was a little difficult for me to figure out why in the middle of a passage on patience and steadfastness we had to break off from our topic not once but twice. First to talk about grumbling and second to have some strange conversation about swearing and oaths. And I think it's because James knows that the Lord will be at work in our lives to bring about situations that invite patience. And situations that invite patience beget impatience. And we are most in danger of losing, forfeiting, this sort of life of peace and joy that comes from patience and steadfastness by turning that impatience on one another either by fighting, grumbling, tearing one another down, 
or by just speaking falsely. Especially based on Jesus' teaching on oaths and false oaths and saying oaths to make people think that you're saying something true when you're actually intentionally saying something false. It seems likely that at this point in history, in this context, there was actually an epidemic of people lying by saying in a tricky way that they were saying something true. Well, I swear it. I swear it by the bread on the altar, but not actually by the altar. It's a cultural example of being dishonest and cutting one another down. And it really is the great temptation, the easiest way to get fired. It made more sense to me when one commentator pointed out to me the story of Peter, how he told Jesus that he would never abandon him even to death, and yet hours later denies him three times with an oath. Matthew twenty six seventy four. Certainly you too are one of them, for you your accent betrays you. Then Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. Even Peter, of all people, got caught up in the moment of stress and impatience and turned on one another. R.J. Noling who defines steadfastness as the temper which does not easily succumb under suffering, defined patience as a self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. And there's plenty of wrongs out there to retaliate about. Todd touched on last time the first six verses of chapter 5, which talks about the rich people enslaving the poor people. That's why immediately after, he says, be patient, therefore, brothers, therefore, in view of the sufferings and the difficulties and the wrongs out there, be patient, i.e., practice a self-restraint which does not hastily retaliate against a wrong. Those of us who... uh, worked for Alaska Airlines, and I think probably any airline, in spite of the difficulties, keep doing it. Or if you keep doing it, uh, you keep doing it for several reasons. One of them is the pay, uh, which was, in my case, started at $9 an hour, which is decent for a college job. The real money was in the overtime. You get double and a half for working on Christmas. Um, But no one who works for an airline for pay works for an airline very long. Uh, what I think kept most of us going, ironically enough, was the people. That as much as you get barked at and scorched every day, when you arrive sleepy-eyed at the airport at 5.30 a.m. and you step in immediately to a glowing city filled with buzzing people, you know and are reminded every day that soldiers need to go home. And grandparents need to be present
for their grandchildren's first birthdays. That families need vacations, children need to go to Disneyland sometimes, fishermen need to go to Alaska to work. And they can't do that unless you're there. And especially for myself, having been loved by Christ, there is a certain delight in not only helping people get there, but helping them get there well. Showing them respect. Helping uh, single mothers with their bags and uh, elderly folks find their way. And I was grateful to work for an airline that encouraged that sort of thing. When it got really bad, there was also the travel. I was working at the airport the day some fool in London tried to blow up a plane using Powerade. And the TSA decided on an emergency basis for the first time to ban liquids, gels, and creams from passing through security with no notice. I arrived at the airport at 5.30 a.m. to notice that the line to get through the security gate had filled up all of the stanchions in front of the security gate, down the concourse, around the corner, in front of the ticket counter, across the sky bridge, and into the parking garage. And the line continued to be that long until I clocked out at 2, at which point I was offered overtime, to which I said no, clocked out, changed out of my uniform, booked myself on the 2.45 flight to Juneau, which is never full, and three hours later was having a beer and salmon in Alaska. (laughs) And I can tell you, for most of us, it was true that on the really bad days, as the person is yelling at you, somewhere in the back of your mind, what you're really thinking is, is it going to be crab and ketchikan or clam chowder and sourdough in San Francisco. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, establish your hearts, For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 11, you have heard the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That word merciful could actually be translated abundantly tenderhearted. Ah. Beer and salmon in Juno is awesome. But James gives us a motivation that's better. You can be patient. You can exercise self-restraint, which does not hastily retaliate, and you cannot easily succumb under suffering if you know that the Lord is on his way back and his purpose in all of this is to be compassionate and abundantly tenderhearted. I am told that there are over 300 references to the coming of the Lord in the New Testament. 
That's one for every 13 verses. That tells me that the New Testament Christians lived with the coming of the Lord in front of their face like a pilot looks at a heads-up display. It's always there. Because how you think the story ends determines the way that you live it. And there's absolutely no good reason, aside from keeping your job, to practice self-restraint, which does not hastily retaliate, if there's no end like that coming. This short little paragraph is wonderfully structured. In verse 7 and 8, we hear about the coming of the Lord. And in verse 11, the coming Lord brings mercy, compassion, and abundant tenderheartedness. In verse 9, we hear about the coming judge. And in verse 12, he brings condemnation. It's the same person. And taken together, those things should work for us like a sure hope and a strong call to endure. Looking forward to his personal presence. That he, who had James as a younger brother and befriended John as the disciple he loved, has also befriended you and is not ashamed to call you his brother and he is coming back and he will clean up. We had a joke at Alaska Airlines that wasn't really a joke. But if you work for an airline, one of three things happens. You either burn out and leave, or you become a bitter, angry person. We had a few of those at Alaska. You've all met them. (laughs) Or you become a saint. You get yelled at that much. You're under that much stress for that long and wake up at 3.30 every morning so that you can earn $9 an hour. You either get bitter or you develop an amazing patience, a self-restraint, not hasty to retaliate, a temper which does not easily succumb under suffering. Marianne Capon is one of those people. At Alaska Airlines, we had Mike Hutton. He'd been working there since before I was born. He had gray hair and a gray goatee. In the summertime, it's hot, and uh, the uniform option for the summertime, you can always wear pants, but you have the option of wearing shorts with white tennis shoes, as long as you also wear the button-up shirt, the lanyard with the ID, or, if you also desire, the cardigan sweater. Uh, Mike was tall with a massive chest, and the shorts plus cardigan sweater made him look decidedly top-heavy. He was uh, what we called a lead. So he um, worked in uniform behind the ticket counter or at the gates, and when you got yelled at for too long, Mike came over. 
He's the most calm, gracious person I've ever met. It didn't matter what people said to him. He didn't take their junk, but he wasn't going to throw it back at them either. He was calm, patient. Well, sir, your hotel probably isn't there anymore. I have it on good authority that United Airlines is also not flying to Mazatlan today, but if you would like for us to print out your coupon for you to take it over there, I'm happy to do it. Thanks for purchasing your ticket with us. I worked a summer in baggage claim, and uh, one day a guy comes up, uh, and by the way, if you work in baggage claim, there's only one reason for people to come up to you, and it's not a good one. <laughs> was sitting next to uh, a 50-year-old lady, also a saint, and this guy unloaded on her at length, and she quietly listened to him. I wasn't quite sure if I wanted to hit him or crawl under the desk I couldn't concentrate on the person I was speaking to. It was that intense. She listened to him, and then she said, Sir, let me explain the situation. Right now, there are two people in the world who care about your bag, and one of them is beginning to lose interest. It totally worked. The guy apologized immediately. It was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. (laughs) It's the one thing I feel like I kind of missed out on because I laughed after two years. Uh, I don't have that kind of patience or steadfastness. But the Lord is building in in me still. James has a theology of the Christian life, which is all about process and growth. He begins, I alluded earlier to, he begins talking about patience. He says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's a familiar word. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. He tells us in our passage about the farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. And the thing you know when you're a farmer is that you work hard, I'm told that Todd talked about this last time, actually. You work hard and have absolutely no control over what happens. And you, you work hard, but you don't actually do anything in relation to growing plants. They either grow or they don't. The Lord kind of does that. You don't bring the early and the late rains. He does. And just as the Lord brings the early and the late rains, so he brings circumstances in our life that invite patience. And he's doing so that patience and steadfastness might have their 
full effect that we might become perfect, lacking nothing. It is, just as for the farmer, not a passive process. It's not that we just sort of lay back and wait for patience to help happen to us. We engage in it with great strength, establishing our hearts, setting our faces. And yet at the same time, it's really not something that we do. It's something that he creates in us. Our work is to receive and participate and endure. Um, This is the kind of thing that probably only I care about. But uh, between last Sunday and this Sunday, the white disappeared and the green appeared. And what that means is that um, the traditional time that the church set aside for celebrating the resurrection of Jesus for feasting and eating a lot of food and hanging out and having a great time has come to an end. Uh, And this is what they call, quite blandly, ordinary time. And the color for ordinary time is green. Because plants are green. And plants grow during ordinary time. Farmers farm, plants grow, and bear fruit. And we live our lives in ordinary time. And that is where the Lord does his work. Bringing about patience and steadfastness that will make us perfect and complete in every way. It's always a little bit sad for me to, uh, to return to ordinary time, but I think there's, there's actually a certain hope about it. We're back to the real. This is the real thing. We're in a real place, in a real time, doing real stuff. People really yell at me. And the Lord really is coming back at the end of this ordinary time, whenever it is, And for that reason, we can hang on. In fact, having gotten to this point in my sermon, I finally decided that Christian survival was kind of a stupid title. Because it's not really about survival. It's about the green. It's about the growth. It's about human flourishing. Let's pray.